I'm Alex Delay, and this is Vision Vibes. This story was originally broadcast on television as part of NHK World Japan's interview series, Direct Talk. A big part of how we understand the world comes to us by way of stories. Most of what I know about science and history isn't the result of my personal observations, but of detailed explanations by people I trust. Scientists, teachers, experts who have studied these things and passed their knowledge along to me. Stories become part of our identity, of how we view the world. Once we believe them, they can feel as real as the earth beneath our feet. The problem is, not all stories are true. Some are even downright destructive, like the lie about how one race is better than the others. Today's guest knows how to take down destructive stories because he used to believe in one. Christian Picciolini is a former white supremacist. He was fed a narrative of hate which went on to dominate his life. But then he figured a way out. Now, Christian has founded an organization that specializes in guiding others away from their extremist views. How do you help someone let go of a lifetime of hate and anger? Let's join narrator Hannah Barnes and find out more on today's episode of Vision Vibes. In January 2021, the attack on the U.S. Capitol sent shockwaves through the American public. White supremacists were among those involved. In recent years, an increase in the activity and visibility of white supremacist groups has emerged as a major issue in the United States. Once a member of a neo-Nazi skinhead group, Christian Picciolini has spent the last 20 years working to save people like his former self. We asked him how they fall into extremism and what we can do to prevent it. Well, when I saw the Capitol attack on January 6th,、uh, I think like most Amer- Americans, it Was very frightening for me,、uh, and it was something that was very serious. But having come from the kind of background that I came from, I also understood very clearly what the strategy was on the Capitol attack on the part of white supremacists. And what we saw had been something that I think was in、uh, the works for a long time, not in terms of that specific event. But in terms of the type of reaction that white supremacists had at that certain moment,、uh, the internet has made it so、uh, what used to be on the fringe is now accessible to anybody from their living room,、uh, especially in, in the last year and a half when we've been isolated in our homes with nothing but access to the internet. We've Gotten very used to searching for answers online. The internet has given the average person easy access from their living room to the same type of information that used to be very difficult to find. 
that uncertainty and things like a pandemic and unemployment and joblessness and lack of health care and even in some cases, you know, access to education. All of those issues that are social issues where people have a difficulty accessing those can cause people to want to find answers in other ways. And oftentimes they look on the fringes for those answers where extremists are very loud with their false replies, with their false information. It's generally assumed that white supremacists believe in their superiority over other racial groups and fear that their existence is under threat. But Picciolini thinks that the real roots of hate are in what he calls potholes. I think what drives people to those toxic extremist ideologies is a search for identity, community, and purpose. And those are three things that every person on earth searches for. They shape our values and who we are. But along that search for identity, community, and purpose, some of us hit what I call potholes in our life's journey. And potholes are things like trauma, uh, abuse, loss, grief, uh, challenges with mental health, poverty. Even privilege can be a pothole if it keeps us too separate from humanity. And those potholes can detour us to the fringes uh, as we're searching for identity, community, and purpose. And on the fringes, there are some very loud voices that are toxic uh, that are trying to promote very negative identity, community, and purpose. And they weren't taught to hate at home. They found it outside of the home. And that's typically, you know, for young people at the age of 14, 15 years old, that's typically when they're starting to develop some independence from their family, from their parents. Um, and they're looking for answers of who they are and where they belong. Maybe they couldn't find friends. Maybe they were bullied. Maybe they were dealing with challenges that were very difficult to overcome. And there was no relief for that. Well, one way to, f to think that you have relief from that is to blame somebody else for those problems. So it's very easy for somebody who maybe is immature uh, or has l a lack of self-esteem or maybe has some self-hatred that they can then project onto somebody else. Hate is like a suit of armor that is both protection for the wearer, but also a weapon. Although his childhood began happily, Picciolini was bullied in school. He started to rebel, skip school, and use drugs. When he was 14, a well-known white supremacist in his area approached him, telling him to stop using drugs and inviting him to join his movement to save the white race. Picciolini jumped at the opportunity, eventually creating a neo-Nazi punk rock band propagating hate messages. He got involved in violent incidents and even became the regional leader of a neo-Nazi skinhead group. Uh, so because I had been bullied, when he paid attention to me, it was, it was like the first time that somebody saw me. And it didn't matter to me what he was saying at the time. I didn't even understand what he was saying, to be honest. Uh, but it didn't matter to me what he was saying because I saw that he wanted to bring me in to this group of, of friends. And I had never really experienced that before. I was getting this very, very small reward of camaraderie. Um, and I stayed for eight years. Uh, I stayed as a skinhead for eight years. I eventually became a leader myself and I replaced the man that recruited me that day. Uh, and every day that I went deeper and deeper into that movement, I think it was easy for me to start to believe 
those things, even though it hadn't been something that I had been raised on, because the rewards I was getting as far as what I thought was respect, what I thought was camaraderie, what, you know, there were girls suddenly interested in me, there were friends who saw me as strong where nobody had seen me that before. And it was really boosting my ego to be involved in that. But what I was doing as my ego was going up was I was trying to bring everybody else in the world down. And it wasn't until I started to see all the damage that it was causing, not just to the outside world in terms of the music that I was making or the violence that I was a part of, but it was starting to destroy my family, the people I really cared about, too. Uh, you know, my children, my wife at the time, my parents. Uh, and it started to really dawn on me that that was not who I wanted to be. Uh, and it was difficult to leave because, uh, well, one, the outside world didn't want me back. I was a monster. And nobody wanted me to come back. Uh, also, the people that I was a part of didn't want to let me go. I knew too much. And of course, I wasn't honest with them. Picciolini opened his own record store to sell mostly neo-Nazi punk rock music. But as camouflage, he also carried other genres, which exposed him to a diverse clientele. He gradually started to change. It was at that store uh, that I had the first opportunity to meet people of color, uh, Jewish people, people who were gay for the first time in my life and have a meaningful interaction with them. And But what happened in the course of a year when I had that record store and through those interactions was it gave me the opportunity to see them as human beings. And they treated me, even though they knew who I was, they treated me with respect, with compassion. Uh, and I started to see them as people I respected more than the people I had surrounded myself with for eight years. I had more in common with them. Uh, I laughed more with them. And uh, it was those moments where I got to really get close to the people that I thought I hated and them having compassion for me, even though it wasn't their responsibility, where I started to really abandon the things that I believed. Uh, and it wasn't long after that, uh, when I closed the record store because I, I couldn't sell the racist music anymore. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed to do that. Uh, and it was really the thing that saved my life because it was that moment when I closed the store that I decided that I was going to leave the movement. 20 years ago, his experiences led him to a new purpose, saving others like him. He has talked with more than a thousand extremists and helped about 400 of them stay out of hate groups. His books and speeches have also helped him reach those who might want to seek his help. Although the ideology of those he talks to varies, the key is always to work on their potholes. Well, I think the most important thing uh, when I work with people who are in extremist movements is I listen. Um, you know, they're so used to people being aggressive against them, rightfully so. I mean, they are preaching ideologies that are harmful, that are violent, that are killing people. Uh, but what I do is I listen not to the ideology. I filter out the noise and I listen for the potholes. And then I become a pothole fixer. Uh, I find people, partners who can help me be a pothole fixer, people like psychologists or life coaches, therapists, educators, job trainers. When I listen to people's potholes and I understand what 
may have pushed them in that direction. And also understanding that the identity, community, and purpose of the movement was what pulled them in. Um, I work backwards, and I can figure out how to bring them back to firm, bra- firm ground uh, so that they can self-reflect and understand what they've been a part of. But one thing to understand is that everybody is a human being. And one thing that I've, I've taught myself to be able to do, and it's very difficult to do, is to see the child, not the monster, in every person that I work with regardless of whether that person is 16 or 60. Because what I've also learned uh, as part of this is it's not just young people who are searching for identity, community, and purpose and have potholes. Older generations have a whole lifetime of potholes from divorce to job loss to health conditions. While helping people overcome their potholes, Picciolini also tries to introduce them to someone from a group they previously hated. From his own experience, he knows that the compassion of others can be a powerful force for change. When they're ready, one of the important steps that I take is something that happened to me, is this idea of immersion, of putting people in a situation of coming face to face with the people that they thought that they hated. Now, of course, I don't do that right away because I want it to be a safe environment and I would never put somebody in a position where they could get hurt, Um, but I have dozens, maybe hundreds of volunteers coming to me, people who are Asian or people who are black or who are Jewish, who say, I want to be the person that sits with that Nazi or sits with that white supremacist because I want them to see me as a human being. I want to be the first person they see as a human being. And they'll find that they connect on humanity, on the things that we all care about, our children, our families, uh, our passions, music, Things like that are so core to who we are as people that once we start being comfortable sharing those things, that we don't see them as differences, we see them as additions. When the threat of domestic terrorism by white supremacists came into view, the U.S. Congress asked Picciolini to testify. There is clearly a long road ahead. So what can be done to face this issue? I don't want to give a simple answer because it's not easy, but I do think that there are things that we can all be doing now in our communities and our families and even on a grander scale to really prevent this happening in future generations. When we're dealing with a lot of fear during a pandemic and unemployment, people dying and the world changing all around us in real time, people are uh, afraid of change. Uh, And extremists know very well how to use that fear of change uh, to recruit people and to radicalize them into their movement. Uh, It would be impossible for somebody like me to to think that they can do this work alone. It really does take a village. Um, But I keep hope because I've seen the hundreds of people that I've worked with change, move on to have families, move on uh, in some cases to transition to a a different gender, to, uh, you know, adopt a faith that maybe they once hated, to start a family with people that they have excluded for most of their lives. And in many cases, I've seen those people be so much happier with their true selves after they've left the movement. than when they were in the movement. So I do have hope. I think humans are resilient. I think that uh, when we work with each other, when we listen to each other, when we see each other as human beings, we have the the ability to, to really do amazing things. I'm not asking anybody to go out and hug a Nazi. Don't do that. That's probably not good advice. But what I'm saying is, is we all know people who 
are either in that camp or on the borderline and could go in that way. And if we act preemptively now with our young people, with our older generations, and start to build that personal connection and start to maybe be more vulnerable ourselves in terms of our feelings and things like that, we'll see that come back to us. And I think we will prevent future generations from going down that path. We asked Christian Picciolini to leave us with some essential words that have guided him through life. Does it make good happen? Every time I'm facing a difficult decision or something that I really don't know the answer to, I just ask myself the question, is what you're about to do make good happen? And if the answer is yes, I do it. That's usually correct. And if the answer is no, I don't. And that answer is usually correct too. So I'll just tell your audience, make good happen. Make good happen. In our quest to understand the world and find our place in it, we sometimes lose sight of which questions matter. We get obsessed over Did I find the right job? Am I happy with my partner? Is my home big enough? When really, what we should be asking is, am I doing my part to make good happen? For Christian, his part is helping people recover from bad decisions. It's easy to mock or yell at extremists, but that usually only makes us feel better about ourselves. It doesn't make good happen. Instead, Christian listens. He understands that the white supremacist worldview is born from a desperate need for community, identity, and purpose. He's open, vulnerable, and empathetic. What would the world be like if we all approached social problems with empathy? Could we live in a world free from hate? I don't know, but Christian's story has inspired me to imagine and I hope it's inspired you too. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. You can find the transcript as well as our other stories on the NHK World website. I've been Alex Stille. Join us next time for more mind-expanding insights from inspiring people on Vision Vibes. <laughs>